<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 218. Its title, Is China or the U.S. More Vulnerable? Got an email a few weeks ago from George. This is a different George from last week that had the question on rebalancing. This George writes, the United States economic brawl with China will continue to be a hot topic. So which country would economically bleed quicker? National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow said, in a Bloomberg television interview on Friday, quote, their economy's weak, their currency is weak, people are leaving the country. Don't underestimate President Trump's determination to follow through. George continues, the Communist Party does some fancy accounting, but is China's economy weak? And then later he wrote, will Xi's Leninist Mandarin authoritarian government and economy prove superior to American capitalism and democracy. In, well, first, <laughs> in the next 10 years is what he said. I responded, what does superior mean? And, and that he admits that's hard to say. Are we going to measure it by which economy is going to grow the fastest? Because the Chinese economy is starting from a much smaller base. It's GDP, it's output per person, GDP per capita, is only about 14% that of the U.S. So even if it muddles through, it could grow faster than the U.S. So we don't really know, we can't really define superior, but we, in this episode, I want to compare what's going on with China and other emerging markets, some of the risks there, to some of the attributes of the United States. I had another email. This is from a, a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, And he wrote, given the current president and his American first agenda, are we in a distorted long period of U.S. market returns, or essentially higher returns for the U.S. versus outside the U.S.? Or is this period just a great time to load up on emerging markets in anticipation of a positive outcome of all these trade agreements. In the plus episode I did last week, I just I, we've been discussing well in that episode and on the forums this whole idea that emerging markets have underperformed this year. And it's been been somewhat painful because they're down on a year to date basis nine point two percent. This is through August twentieth, twenty eighteen while the U.S. stock market's up 7%. So you have this huge gap. Back in episode, looks like 209, we talked about why invest internationally, and I mentioned the lower valuations for non-U.S. stocks should potentially lead to higher returns over the next decade. But that doesn't mean every single year, and it doesn't mean it actually has to come to pass. 
The U.S. stock market, which sells at a cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio of 29, so what is the P.E., what are investors paying for earnings over the past decade? They're paying $29 versus less than 15 for China. So China is cheaper, but maybe China deserves to be cheaper. Now, one thing to keep in mind is one reason emerging markets have done so poorly relative to the U.S. year-to-date in 2018 is because the U.S. dollar has strengthened. If we look at what emerging markets have performed in local currencies, they're down 4.1% instead of 9.2%. And over the three-year annualized returns for emerging markets, they've held their own relative to the U.S., U.S. has returned 11.8% over the past three years, whereas emerging markets have returned 10.1% in U.S. dollars and 10.8% annualized in local currency. So they're, they're doing fine. But U.S. has done better because it's been getting more expensive. And with the tax cut, that has certainly boosted earnings growth. But both the U.S. and emerging markets have been posting double-digit earnings growth over the past year, and the anticipation by Wall Street analysts is that will continue. Now, I do an episode on China about every two years. I think the first one I did was episode 17. I did another one in July 2016, episode 116, Why Investors Can't Ignore China. And I profiled Kyle Bass of Heyman Capital. He's a hedge fund that was up 212%. In 2007, based on a, a bet against the housing market. And since then, it was, it's been kind of a struggle. Through 2016, after 2007, his hedge fund has only returned low single digits. And his big bet that we talked about in that episode was against China, that the Chinese yuan would depreciate significantly against the U.S. dollars because of a banking and debt crisis in China. Been a painful trade. 2016 turned out pretty good, up 25%. But then 2017, as the U.S. dollar weakened, the yuan strengthened, Heyman Capital lost 19%. And that's why it's so difficult to try to forecast returns, which my listener asked, over the next two years, what's, who's going to do better? I have no idea. It's just too short of time period. I'm not sure who's going to do better over the next decade. All we can do is play the probabilities. We can look at valuations. We can look at economic developments. And on that front, I recently resubscribed to Capital Economics. This is a Economic independent economics firm that I used to use as an investment advisor at my former firm, carried on a subscription for a couple years after I departed there, but haven't subscribed the last four or five years because it's pretty expensive. But it's hard to get data from China, and I, and I feel like we're entering a turning point over the next several years as we've, this economic expansion has gone on for nine years now. Not that it has to end, but I just wanted better data. 
So I resubscribed to the, their U.S. service, and then I'm taking a look at their Chinese and emerging markets service. And I want to share some insights I, I gained from that source as well as other sources to see where are we in terms of is the U.S. or is China more vulnerable? First, though, we have to review probably the most difficult concept that we discuss on Money for the Rest of Us. And that is this idea of balance of payments. This is an accounting identity. And I'll link to a a source in the show notes to a website called moneyandbanking.com. It's put together by Stephen G. Sacchetti, who is a professor of international finance at Brandy International University, and Kermit Schoenholtz, who teaches at the New York University Leonard N. Stern School of Business. Let me read a few lines of what they write, and then I'll try to explain it as simply as possible. They write, the balance of payments is an accounting identity stating that net cross-border flows of goods and services, the current account, must be matched by net flows of financial claims. Simply put, if one country is importing more than it is exporting from another country, it must find a way to finance that difference. When exports broadly defined include not only goods and services sold to foreigners, but also the income earned by residents on assets abroad, on their investments, when that When those exports exceed imports, the current account is in surplus. When exports fall short of imports, the current account is in deficit. And when income falls short of spending, the result is a current account deficit. So let's think about that. If a country imports more than they export... They have to come up with the money to do that. They're running a current account deficit. They have to finance that deficit somehow. And they finance that by getting capital flows, the financial flows from other countries in the form of debt. They borrow from outside the country or they take investment from outside the company. Maybe they sell equity. But these are broad-based accounting identities, that if a country, take the flip side, is running a current account surplus like China is, that means that they're getting money flowing in to their country because they've now exported more than they've imported. They have this additional income, which then has to be offset. That means they now have a surplus of of money that they then invest overseas. That's why China owns so many U.S. Treasury bills and bonds. They have a surplus that they invest overseas. Now, this is how, and I've talked about this in in numerous episodes, I always feel like it's just a hard concept, and it is. I always have to review it every time. I was like, how does this work again? It's important because what's going on in Turkey right now where Turkey is running a current account deficit. 
they're importing more than they're exporting, which means it has to be financed by other countries, particularly by European banks, have big stakes investing. And it's not that a current account deficit is bad on its surface. It depends on how that capital flow, those financial flows going into the country are invested. If they're invested in things to increase the productivity of the country, then it helps the economy grow faster and it works out. But as The Economist points out what went on with Turkey, they say economic turmoil was on the cards long before the row with America. This is a little bit of a trade spat. For years, Mr. Erdogan has forced, the president, has forced banks to keep interest rates low, and hopefully I pronounced his name right. So he's kept interest rates low. Companies gorged on credit. The lira fell and inflation topped 15%. Money poured into construction contracts for cronies and vanity projects like a bridge over the Bosphorus, a vast airport in Istanbul, and the president's 1,100-room, $615 million palace in Ankara. As spending boomed, the current account deficit swelled. And that's what's going on. And then there was what's known as a sudden stop when foreigners are suddenly unwilling. They're worried about getting paid on their debt. You can have capital flight leaving because they don't want to finance that current account deficit. The currency plummets. The lira has fallen 40% this year. And similar situation occurred earlier in Argentina this year, to where there was an international monetary fund bailout. In the case of Turkey, what they need to do is raise interest rates dramatically in order to keep the currency from weakening further and hopefully attract the investment so that there could be a gradual reshifting of the economy. But the president doesn't want to do that because he doesn't believe he believes raising rates hurts the poor. And there, I mean, there's some truth to that, but that they're in a very dire financial situation. Now, Turkey is small relative to other emerging market countries. They only export, or, I think, or they import like 1.5% of, of global trade. But there's been some concern on emerging markets, and one reason emerging markets are down year to date is because is there going to be some contagion? Are other emerging market countries in a similar situation. How big is their current account deficits? Well, it turns out that Turkey, going back to 2013 versus today, Turkey's current account deficit has gotten worse. It's about 6% of GDP, the output in the economy. Argentina is over 5%. Other emerging market countries have actually improved since 2013. South Africa is around 2.5%. India is less than 2%. Mexico is around 1% current account deficit. Brazil, less than 1%. Poland, less than 1%. And China and Russia are running current account surpluses. So emerging markets are in a much better situation than they were certainly in 2013 
definitely back in 1997 when there was a, a huge emerging market crisis. So they're in a better situation. They're less vulnerable. Most of them have reserves, currency reserves. And so when we talk about emerging markets, they're, they're much less expensive in terms of valuation. Their economies are smaller, but growing faster. And that gets back to why the expectation over the next decade is they will have a higher return for the stock market than the U.S. Not guaranteed, but that, that's what the probabilities are saying. Now, before we answer the question, who then is more vulnerable, the U.S. or China in terms of the economy, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The U.S., by the way, has a current account deficit equal to about 2.5% of GDP. Because it's a reserve currency, it, it's able to finance that because it has the biggest bond market in the world in terms of U.S. Treasuries. So investors want to invest here. China is running a current account surplus. They're not vulnerable in the same way that Argentina and Turkey are, where you're going to potentially see a huge devaluation in the currency. Not to mention China keeps their currency trading around a small band, a range relative to the U.S. But that does not mean that China doesn't have significant problems. China has been growing, was growing their economy about 10% per year. Their official statistics say that they're now growing around 6.5%. 
per the amount of output. Capital X Economics has what they call a Chinese activity monitor, sort of a proxy for GDP. They say it's still growing at 5%. Now, this is real, so much faster on a nominal basis. But here are the three headwinds that China faces that does, in reality, make it more vulnerable than the U.S. First, there is heavy state intervention. While the state-owned companies or state-controlled company only employ roughly 10 to 15% of the workforce, the state has a much greater influence on, even in the private sector. In fact, Capital Economics found that the bigger a private sector company became, it became less productive because the state is sort of meddling in what they do. So you have the state intervention. The second thing is we have these huge debt balances that are increasing. And much of that debt, that, that investment is being misallocated because the banks, which are owned by the Chinese government, generally speaking, prefer to invest in state-controlled companies because there's an implicit guarantee that if the debt goes bad, that the government will step in. Less risky. That's what the incentive is. It's less risky to invest in a state-controlled company because you, as a bank, you think you will get paid back. When we combine that with a third aspect of China, that their population growth is slowing, particularly in the workforce age, those that are the age to be, to be working, that, that's slowing. So in order for the Chinese economy to continue to grow faster, they, they have two choices. They, they can export the way out of it. But that's very, very difficult to do because China is so big that even right now they're, they're running a current account surplus, which means they, they have, they're exporting more than they're importing. And capital economics points out if they continue to, to export, increase exports at the current pace, they will control 40% of the world's exports. And the world just won't accept that. There's already, we have this trade dispute. And we're not even near that. No emerging markets economy has ever been more than 20%. I don't think any economy has more than been more than 20% of global exports. So right now, China makes up 13% of global exports. But the reality is they're going to have to turn inward. They're going to have to increase productivity. The output per worker, because the workforce growth is slowing, and it's hard to increase productivity when you have misallocation of capital, huge debt balances, and state intervention. And that is the weakness of China. The U.S. generally does a better job of allocating capital. Sometimes there's misallocation. But generally speaking, it's not top-down allocation. The state is not anywhere near as involved in the U.S. economy as China is. And Capital Economics points out the surge in Chinese debt levels is a key risk to the economic outlook that has been widely discussed. 
Every other major emerging market that has witnessed such a large increase in debt ratios over such a short time horizon has subsequently faced a banking or financial crisis of some sort, with economic growth suffering in the aftermath. Although many indebted firms in China have been given a temporary reprieve by the latest round of policy stimulus, they may run into trouble in the coming years if, as we expect, the economy resumes its slowdown. And with policymakers still hopeful that the market will be able to absorb the cost of the debt cleanup via NPL or non-performing loan securitizations and debt-to-equity swaps, there is a risk that they will fail to intervene in time to avert a bout of financial instability. At the same time, China has a unique degree of control over its financial system since nearly all of the major lenders are state-owned. And it seems very likely that when push comes to shove, the government will step in forcefully to backstop the financial system in order to prevent any volatility from snowballing into a full-blown crisis, taking much of the bad debt onto its own balance sheet if necessary. This would push up China's government debt ratio considerably, but for a country with a sovereign monetary policy, this shouldn't pose too much of a problem. China's unique in terms of their state control, but also the entrepreneurialism and elements of capitalism within the economy. That the fact that they do own the banks leads to misallocation of capital, but it also means that a debt crisis within the banking system isn't guaranteed, which is why it's very difficult to sit here and say, I'm not going to invest in China or I'm not going to invest in emerging markets. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that those areas are cheaper. They do have, despite their problems, faster economic growth, even if it is slowing, and potentially will perform better. But I'm monitoring it, looking at it. That's one reason I signed up for capital economics. That's why I look at monthly business surveys, PMI data to see because emerging markets have slowed a little bit some of the momentum and it appears that they're going to be into contraction mode, then yeah, I will lighten up my emerging markets exposure. But for now, I'm, I'm staying put. I went significantly overweight emerging markets in terms of my stock exposure in 2016. And it's, it's done fine. I, I haven't been overly worried about it. This year hasn't been as much fun, but that just that's investing. But if it appears that some of the things are, are there is going to be some contagion, then I'll lighten up. And that's, that's how I invest. And that's how I teach investing on, on money for the rest of us and money for the rest of us plus. So in conclusion, then, I think China is more vulnerable than the U.S. over the next decade. But that doesn't mean a crash is necessarily coming. We'll wait and see and adjust accordingly. Hey, the show notes for this episode will be at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly. That's where I also provide other valuable content, things that's not available on the website, a new essay each week, things that didn't make it into the podcast, additional insight that I want to share. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. Not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.